0: Hello friends and welcome to the second season of the I Belong Here podcast. I'm so excited to bring this new season to all of you, and thank you so much for staying with us during the first one, for all the sharing, retweeting, posting, etc. I'm so excited for you to discover all the new role models that we have interviewed, because you are going to listen to lots of stories, lots of backgrounds, lots of cool science, and overall, lots of woman empowerment. So now, sit back, relax, and have fun listening to all the episodes.
1: And she said, don't you change, but I can't help these thoughts up in my brain, yeah, she's breaking me
0: down. Hey guys, welcome to a new episode of the I Below Here podcast. Today, I'm really excited to present to you guys my next guest. Her name is Pernilla. Hi, Pernilla. Hi,
2: nice to meet you.
0: Yay. And everybody so, out there, yeah. Hmm? Exactly, yeah. I'm so excited to have you here and we are going to discuss some really great topics and um, this second season of the podcast we have had a lot of uh, we are going to have a lot of motherhood discussions as well so this is going to be really interesting for many type of uh, for many different audiences um, so before um, Pernila talked to us about her amazing research and her trajectory to science I want to tell you guys a bit more about her Um, So, Pernilla is a professor of biology and biological engineering at Chalmers University of Technology in Sweden. Her research is about proteins, in particular how they function correctly and when things go wrong. She spent 12 years in academia in the USA before she returned to Sweden in 2008. She's now a member of the Swedish Academy and the Nobel Prize Committee for Chemistry. She has also started the platform called Genie in 2019, which is a gender initiative. This is quite important because when she started her career, she was often the only woman and had no clue about gender inequality. She is also a mom of two beautiful daughters. Now, I have like a billion questions to ask you because this is (laughs) so amazing to me, and I'm pretty sure we're going to have a great discussion about all these topics, so... First of all, um, can you tell us a bit more about your research? What is it that, what, what happens with proteins? Why, why they go wrong? <laughs> yeah, no, so actually
2: proteins are probably responsible for, for all diseases in one way or another. Mm. So proteins, you know, they are made from, the, the information is in the DNA and is translated to a protein that will do the function. And this Mm. protein has to fold up. It's like a long chain of amino acids, like a Mm -hmm. boiled spaghetti in a way I sometimes (laughs) say, and that has to curl up to kind of a yarn ball to function. Mm. Okay. And and that folding process to go to that functional state is something that I've studied for a long time. Mm -hmm. And when that goes wrong, it can cause disease because you lose function, but you can also gain toxic function. Mm-hmm. So that's the problem. And a lot of the diseases we have today that are increasing, neuro- neurodegenerative diseases such as Alzheimer's and Parkinson's, they they come because proteins misfold and aggregate to long fibers or plaques in the brain.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And that's really bad. And, and brain cells die. So we're trying to understand why do you fold incorrectly and why do you aggregate and how can we stop that? Mm-hmm really basic science. I don't try to find drugs, but I am trying to find kind of the pathways, what happens so other people can then design something to fix it. Mm-hmm. But, you know, uh, the, the largest risk factor for these uh, diseases that I mentioned are really age. Mm. And the population, the world's population is getting older. And that's good, right? Yeah, but that yeah. also means that um, we get more and more of these cases. Yes. So, and we have no cures today. So in a way, I feel it 's really scary, and we need a lot more basic research to understand you know how to tackle this yes so i'm trying to contribute a little bit by you know no, learning more about how these proteins behave. I also study proteins that bind metal ions, so a lot of the proteins we have in our body need kind of you know uh, nutrients like, like iron and copper and zinc and you know these small metal ions that are very important in in small amounts, but can be really toxic if they do what they want. So they always have to be stuck with a protein. Mm -hmm. Otherwise it can be dangerous. So we try to figure out how in a body we can move around the metals to the right places without like losing them or or starting toxic things. So so that's kind of the other part of my research. And that brings us over to cancer. Mm. Because cancer requires a lot of metal ions. And we're trying to figure out what proteins are involved then, and how can we then maybe stop those proteins, or maybe use them to detect, you know, say when a cancer is more aggressive than another cancer.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: So it, it actually over the years, my, my research has gone from being very much basic science, deriving general principles, to now more understanding diseases more directly. Mm. Wow. I'm trained, so I I know biophysical methods uh, test tube experiments but we kind of coming more and more into like cell cell type of experiments or microscopy of living cells not organisms but but, you know at least some kind of living systems when you have cells so you can go from the small to the big
0: wow well that sounds fascinating and um It's, it's it's great because even if you even if you mentioned that it was basic science, I think that's really relevant for complex diseases such as Alzheimer or cancer, right? Because, you know, if you think about cancer, it's not only the type of cancers, it's also the type of cells that are in a cancer. The tumor microenvironment, the angiogenesis, the genetic conditions of the patient, the mutations, there's so many things that you do require a certain level of basic science. And and like you said, proteins are everything, right? So it's very relatable to a lot of things that are important and that are in need of that basic science.
2: You're right, and it's so complex. And in a way, we need to study one thing at a time to kind of understand and then put together. But but it's also important to dig deep, right? Because if you just look at kind of the big picture, I mean, you can maybe cure some symptoms, right? But you don't really get to the source of the problem.
0: Exactly, exactly. Wow, that's that's so cool. And um, it's. do you think you can also use, um, I know you were not looking for, for any type of uh, drugs or treatments, but do you think your systems could be used at some sort of drug target? Like something that... Yeah. People that's that what I use. hope, that, that it's it, it, not
2: necessarily finding the drug molecule, but finding yeah. the, target. the target, that this yeah. protein is very, for example, we found one protein that's very important, it seems like for metastasis.
1: Mm.
2: So, I mean, mm-hmm. if you know that you can maybe go in and stop that protein, and then you might kind of limit the progression of cancer. So, yes, so it comes, I see in, in the long term perspective, it's to help people really and to find exactly. new ways to approach exactly. these.
0: Pieces. Yes, well I ask you that because I have a lot of wonderful uh, Medchem colleagues that they synthesize drugs that they will mm. that they will follow some certain protein protein interactions perhaps and they develop the drugs according to that target and obviously they do all the organic chemistry and everything that is necessary which i'm not aware of because <laughs> i'm a biologist but that's what they do right they study a specific protein protein interaction or a specific target and then yeah. that's that's how they design the drug in essence so and I really yeah.
2: think in the future or or now and ahead you know scientists we need to work more and more together Mm -hmm. and and, you know over discipline borders because we need to combine our expertise to like come the whole way
0: exactly exactly science is about helping each other as scientists but in terms in long term helping people right that they will benefit from our science so is everything kind of like a circle That everything is combined, if that makes sense. (laughs) No, no.
2: I mean, it makes perfect sense. And I think many people think that, you know, being a scientist is really like you sit in your office and you're all alone and you figure out something. But it's all about interactions with people. It's such a social job, right? Exactly. Because if we don't talk to each other, nothing will happen.
0: No, no. I'm barely in my office, to be honest.
2: (laughs) No. No, you you are out speaking to people or trying to connect to people or guiding your students or, you know, so it's going to conferences, talking about your research, trying to get it
0: out. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Totally agree with that. So, okay, I understand your science. I understand Mm -hmm. the, the future of your science and I think it's top notch. I'm really, really interested about this but i want to know as well like how did you come to this what's mm-hmm. what's about proteins that moved you because i also said on your brief description at the beginning of the episode that you spent quite a lot of years in the united states and now you are back in europe so yeah. i'm just wondering like what what has happened there was always proteins moving you around or would you imagine yourself doing something completely different when you started your career just tell us a bit more about this journey of yours that is absolutely yeah. amazing?
2: I think I think that's a good question because, I mean, when you look at my history, it looks kind of, you know, like a good trajectory and, you know, maybe <laughs> she planned all of this, but it's all about coincidences in a way. Mm. Now, when I think back and why do things happen? Really, when I was little and I was in school, I was a very shy kid and I, I was good at math. And I like to solve problems Mm. so so that means that when I went to university I wanted to take the physics program but I didn't get in I didn't have good enough grades (laughs) so I got into the chemistry program Mm. and I remember the first day of of this chemistry program at the uh, at the college in Sweden so this was in Sweden we went out to see how an engineer so this was chemical engineering how an engineer would work in a factory and we Mm -hmm. saw these people with helmets and they were screwing (laughs) on things and oh my god I thought I don't want to do that (laughs) and I was like oh my god but then uh, of course I stayed in the program but then I geared my my studies to more fundamental chem chemistry versus like more engineering because eventually during the years you could select more courses on your own. And then it was the last year of college. So this was a four-year program. So in Sweden, you have programs. Mm-hmm. The last year I spent as an exchange student in England. I was at Imperial College for a year. Oh. That's where I was put in a lab to do research. Mm. And I had no clue, right, about doing research. And <laughs> But I was just put in there and I should purify a protein. Mm-hmm. And I really loved it. I liked it. I mean, being in a lab, discovering things that other... That nobody else know i was the first one to kind of figure something out i really enjoyed that and you know working in a lab and so what so that's when i understood you can do a phd after your undergraduate degree Mm -hmm. So then i went back to sweden and i wanted to do a phd i didn't really know what i wanted what topic Yeah. yeah but i had a really great teacher in physical chemistry when i was an undergrad and he was this very inspiring person so I went to him and asked if I could do a PhD in his lab, and I did. And there I got to work on, not proteins, I worked on DNA and DNA analogs. We mm. thought this was the future of genetic drugs, and it was okay, all exciting, okay. and we should go in and cure all the diseases on the DNA level.
1: Mm.
2: It turns out these molecules have a hard time getting into a cell. So oh. from a fundamental point of view, it was very interesting, <laughs> but it, it hasn't yet become a drug. Yeah. But I learned a lot of spectroscopy and I was doing kind of biophysical chemistry. Mm -hmm. But when I finished my PhD, then you kind of see that, you know, after a PhD, you can go away and do research as a postdoc and you can get a fellowship and you can go abroad somewhere. Mm -hmm. And and I think I always been kind of like to travel or or go go new places. Mm -hmm. So I got, I got a fellowship to go abroad and, and I wanted to go to America someplace, you know cool or fun or, or different from <laughs> Sweden. Yeah. So I looked at a few labs and I had, through my PhD, I'd met this professor at Caltech in California. Mm, yes. So he was one of my choices and I went there to visit and I really liked it. Mm. And also they have just published a paper on protein folding using mm. electron transfer so this was a, a new laser method where you can look at really fast reactions. Mm, and it, i thought that was really wow i want to do that and protein folding was kind of a new or timely or, or exciting topic at that time you know how fast can a protein fold to the right structure nobody knew so i got into this lab uh, doing a postdoc and I was there for two years, and that's when I started to work on proteins, really, and kind of understand more about the folding process. So that's what that started my kind of, you know, protein pathway. Mm-hmm. So when I was at my, my postdoc, so I was at Caltech in you know California, sunny, is beautiful, yeah, beaches, mountains, and everything. I was working in a laser lab, two floors below ground. So it was all dark, right? And then I had to go out like for lunch. Child. I could sit outside. But I had a wonderful time. And I think that's when I also understood that you can do a career in academia. You can, you know, you can do a tenure track pathway. You can become a professor somewhere and just work doing research. Mm-hmm. Because I had, I mean, fellow postdocs in the lab or students. So you, you, I just understood much more when I was there in, in America. Mm-hmm. So I thought that being a Swede and naive and everything, I was young, and why don't I, I I want to be a professor, I thought, you know, that sounds kind of fun to be, so why don't I apply for positions in America, I don't want to go back to Sweden, that sounds kind of boring, (laughs) so I applied for faculty positions in America, and the funny part is that I saw this ad from Stanford, Mm. assistant professors, and I thought, Stanford, that's a good place, Mm. I should go there, (laughs) Now I know better. I mean, it's very hard to get into Stanford. It's, I mean, these are top schools and they're normal schools, and you know, they're all kinds of schools. But mm. I thought let's apply to a few more places. You know, yeah. just to back up. Yeah. In the end, I got a position at Tulane University in New Orleans, mm. and that was the only position. My husband said that, you know, don't apply to New Orleans. I've been there and I think that's just party city, you know, where it's <laughs> hot and humid. You know, I applied to other places. Yeah. It was like a cute ad. I kind of liked something about <laughs> it. So. And that's where we ended up. Mm. So then I went to the chemistry department at Tulane University. And I was the first female assistant professor they had, the first female they had in the department. So they had no clue what to do with me, really. Oh my but God. I had a wonderful time. I mean I was driven right and I got grants and I had students things were going well I so they supported me a lot. Hmm. I was at Tulane for five years and I think within three years I got tenure. Okay. I didn't really know I mean if I was good or not I was just trying to get grants trying to publish trying to do all those things I had I mean I was given a lab and it and it was full of old stuff. So I had to first clean it out. And then I had to fill it with things and, and recruit students. And I didn't know what it was to be an independent scientist. But, you know, you learn as you go. And I yes. I think I just enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and maybe I, was, I had some talent because I survived. <laughs> After five years at Tulane and one daughter at that time, and we'll talk about kids later. Yes. Uh, But then I moved to Houston, Texas, to Rice Mm University. And really that move was not, it turned out to be really good, but it was because I organized an alumni party for for alumni from my university in Sweden that are in America. They have like an organization and every year you meet. So me and my husband, we organized this at at our house. So we got all these kind of former... um, students to the house. And, you know, living in America for them, they all like prominent people at different companies and so on, all Swedes. But there was one guy there that was a professor at another university. So that was like the only academic. I talked to him and he said that, you know, Penilla to get a higher salary, you should always apply for jobs elsewhere. That's the only way to boost your salary. You should do that. Send me your CV. Mm. And I thought, okay, maybe that's the way to get a higher salary. So eventually I sent him my CV. And at that time, I didn't know much about Texas. I've seen the, the TV series Dallas on TV. That was like <laughs> okay. connection. And I thought, I cannot live in Texas. What is Texas? More than cowboys. <laughs> but anyway, I did it. And, and he apparently sent the CV around. And then the biochemistry department contacted me and said, we're interested. Can you come visit? So I went to Houston and I visited Rice University. And it was a wonderful place. You know, better than Tulane in terms of the school reputation. Mm-hmm. So I was thinking I will get better students here. Mm-hmm. And the fact is that my husband, who worked for an energy company in New Orleans, they had the headquarters in Houston. Mm-hmm. So for him, it would be great to transfer.
0: Yeah.
2: So then we just decided let's move to Houston. Mm-hmm. So then we, I, I was there, or we were there, and I worked. At, I became an associate professor then at rice and i was there for five years we had another daughter
1: Mm -hmm.
2: and then come the time when i had two kids one was starting school Mm -hmm. and i it was kind of it felt like now was the first time i thought about like big picture or future long term because if we stay my kids will be americans and we will go through the american school system with them yeah yeah it's like i don't know anything about that. and how do i kind of give my sweet my kids this kind of swedish way of things i mean I felt they put a lot of pressure on me, like cooking food, Swedish food (laughs) for them and all those things. Yeah. And also, you know, we went home. So my husband is also Swedish. So we met in college and then, you know, we traveled around. But um, our parents and our family are in Sweden. Yeah. And every summer we went home for two weeks to see our family and we traveled around like Tracy in Sweden to see everybody. And then we came back to America and vacation was over. Yeah. It didn't feel like that would work in the long term. You know, it's yes. like it was really a vacation and, and our parents were getting older, sick maybe. And, you know, there was all those things. So we thought, we think we want to raise the kids in Sweden. We think we need to be in Sweden. And if something comes up, I should apply. But we're not in a hurry. Of course, yeah. But then it was funny because this university in the north of Sweden, Umeå University. So Umeå is a city in the north, northern part of Sweden. Mm-hmm they looked for seven professors in chemistry mm. and you know you never look for seven professors it wasn't kind of a really unique ad yeah. and I just thought that you know I need to apply it's a way to show myself on the Swedish market in a way
1: yeah
2: and so I applied uh, but it's a small city in the north you know I didn't think that that would be the place naively I thought from the beginning we should be in a big city kids should go to international school and you know we need like you know that type of setting but then i then they called me and said you know you you stick out you get the job you know you maybe you want to come and visit but you get the job and i thought oh my god Uh, so i went there to, i felt i have to go and visit right i don't know what it is yeah but i went to visit and this is also everything could be kind of funny stories afterwards but i went there in december to visit And in December, in the northern part of Sweden, it's like dark all the time. Oh, yeah. So this one professor was driving me around to show me housing areas. Mm. And it was completely dark. I didn't see any house. Oh, my God. (laughs) But but then I went to one school to visit the elementary school. And I saw the menu for the Ah. kids. And it was like, oh, my God, we need to do this.
0: This is what I need.
2: (laughs) So then my husband also got a job there and we decided to take it. So we moved there. The kids were three and seven when we moved. So we, they were young enough to, to not really you know, have yeah. a say in this, yeah. right? And, and it was not actually such a big deal for them. Mm-hmm. So then we were there in Umeå, and that was now 13 years ago. Oh, yeah. So I thought maybe that's where we end up. Mm. But then now, since six years back, I've returned to Chalmers, my, the university where I got my undergraduate and PhD degree. Mm-hmm. And it was really after seven years in Umyo, I don't know if I have to move after a certain time because they always done it. But certain sort of things you you want to change things, you want to make things better. And, and I felt like I didn't get through what I wanted. They they told me that you should, you know, you shouldn't teach so much because you have funding so you can pay your salary. And I wanted to teach. I like that, for example. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, Palmers approached me and said, we're starting a new department and we want to recruit you as part of building up this new department mm. to be head of one of the divisions. And moving to Gothenburg really it would put me closer to my family mm-hmm. because in the north I didn't have my family and my mom was sick. So I knew I had to like, you know, deal with her and, and I had sisters and things. And actually, my husband was out of job at that time. Mm-hmm. Gothenburg is a bigger city so that all these like personal things together with the possibility that I could move then we moved yes so now I've been at Chalmers for six years (laughs) Um, and you know I think now it took actually took more time to get used to Gothenburg for the kids because they were the ones that were upset when we moved because then they were they were 10 and 14 and that was not the age. You know, I heard yeah. a lot like, mom, you destroy my life. You know, oh, so no. I had to, I felt bad for a while and it took almost a few years before the kids were happy. Hmm. But now they're fine. And I think they appreciate a the lot. And the older they get, I can see that they, you know, these different places you've been to, it kind of enriches your kind of where oh,
0: so you're so being, much. what you know
2: about the world in a way. Yes,
0: yeah, yeah. I can understand that they were feeling a bit like, oh, we need to move again, which we can talk about that as well because at some point that's the life of a scientist, I feel. Unless you have a really settled place that you stay because of, I don't know, whatever reason you have a job there or you just get tenure and then you stay there. But otherwise I feel like part of the life of a scientist is to move out and about until you decide to settle somewhere or settle for certain amount of years and then you just go elsewhere but i can understand that the older your your kids they get they will realize you know you did this because of your your job your profession and and your motivations as well and also to get a better life for your family as well yeah
2: and i think also okay i don't i can't compare right but i mean i think every time i have moved you get new inspiration new colleagues so your research actually develops in, in kind of new directions that it's hard to plan right but it kind of for me it's been very rewarding because i get into new things and i, I learn new things and i take you know so, so it's scientific wise it's also i think very helpful or, or useful and exactly, i think yeah. you can probably yeah. get that at, at staying at one place mm-hmm. i mean you have turnover of your students of your colleagues anyway so you know you always go forward
0: exactly yes well, your your journey and your trajectory is amazing. Like I'm fascinated by it. It's just wow. <laughs> it's an amazing example of, of, you know, like a successful career in science and, and an example as well of just going where your gut tells you as well and just looking for the opportunities that are going to be good for you and for your family, but also looking after the opportunities that you deserve right? You were always looking for that step up, which is natural, but not a lot of people do that because they think they deserve it, if that makes sense. Some people Mm -hmm. prefer to stay with a position that they might feel comfortable with, and that's it. And especially as female scientists, I think we fight a lot with going a step higher. I think we always feel we need to be over-prepared to go to the next step, um, this happens to me, I want to be a, a professor at some point in my career and I. this is my second postdoc and I keep thinking that I need way more postdocs to yeah. go to the professor, you know? I still, I'm scared of trying it because I feel that I don't have the level, I need to go more, which is it's fine to get to be prepared, right? And to get yeah. the skills and the yeah. papers and whatever you need for your next job. But I just, like, I think you obviously you summarized in like maybe five minutes, a really long trajectory in your life. So obviously it was not that easy as to say it to us right now, but it's just an amazing example, you know, of what you did for your career and, and for fighting for your beliefs. And I, I, I'm completely and I think that's f- with that.
2: No, and I think helpful to me when I was in America was maybe really, I had this kind of thought that if I fail, I can always go back to sweden yeah so it was almost like i was doing these things in america and trying out for things that that they, i had kind of a backup mm-hmm. okay now i'm back in sweden and, and i mean but sometimes i also deep inside i always i mean i have a lot of anxiety and i worry that somehow you know this is a like this bubble that will burst one time, and people will realize I'm not as good as I look. Like you know,
0: oh yeah, that,
2: I that think we all <laughs> kind of, I mean, we worry about that so much, right? And we should be good enough, and we should be better, and and it is really hard. But still, I think we need to take chances and try because we can always, you know, go back if it's not yes, working yes. out or we don't like it.
0: Yes, so it's it's funny that you say that, right? Because you are. To me, I mean, I only met you today, right? But I heard about yeah. your story right now. And to me, you are this super senior scientist, like superwoman, like accomplishing a lot of things. You are part of so many initiatives and the Nobel Committee. I mean, hello. <laughs> I know. I know. <laughs> and and, and, and that's a lot <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's amazing. You have all these things and then yeah. sometimes you feel like I can feel on the lab, you know, like, oh, I'm not good enough to do this. Yeah, you know and to cool. me you are like role model right mm-hmm. and then you have the same feelings that i might have once in a while yeah. so it's it's just funny right how how sometimes the mind and the uh imposter syndrome works with us it's just um oh my god <laughs> no and, and i think we have to maybe
2: sometimes accept that sometimes when i'm really anxious i'm trying to tell myself that okay this is okay panila it it will be gone tomorrow or later or like you know I mean, before seminars or, or last year, I I was the one that announced the Nobel Prize, oh, like wow. a two minute, like or the day of announcement in October. And wow. you can't see it on the when you look at the movie of this. But I mean, <laughs> I was so nervous, right? I mean, I was, my, my heart was just and I, I didn't know if I could get my words out. And, oh, my God, of course. That's so intimidating. And you think with time, things should get easier. And. things get easier but i think we just have to accept that it it, we will never get rid of this or i mean it's the point to be successful you don't get rid of your anxiety or your nerve i mean those things you have to deal with it or handle it or just exactly
0: accept that yeah yes i think also at some level we get anxious as well because we worry a lot about what's gonna happen and we worry a lot about doing a good performance whether yeah. if it's like a presentation or in your case, I mean, oh my God, presenting a Nobel prize, yeah. I will have fainted like. <laughs> yeah. No, and then <laughs> you start to worry about that, right? What happens if I faint in there? Yeah, <laughs> or... What happens? <laughs> oh my God. Like that will be Jesus. I will really faint to be honest, either that, or I will laugh yeah. like for two minutes straight, like non-stop, just laughing. <laughs>
2: yeah. No, yeah, no, but I think, but I think sometimes it's like, beforehand i want to try if i can do certain things and then i push myself to like say yes to to doing things or to try things or ask for things and then when i'm actually in the moment i'm really nervous but then i will so it's kind of i know i put myself in these situations but still and i maybe i want to test my limits all the time Mm -hmm. Because that was kind of when I started out, I thought, yeah, I didn't know if I could be a professor, but I thought, you know, let's see if I can do it. So I always like thought one step at a time.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: So you, yes. Now you're in a postdoc, right? So then you should be an assistant professor. Then you can think, can I get tenure? And then yes. can I be full professor? Then can I, you know, become this? And, so so one doesn't think about the whole thing right away.
0: Exactly. Yeah, yeah. No, it's definitely a step by step and just, you know, Keeping your your toes on the floor, and then just going mm-hmm. always with I I'm all about following the path that your gut tells you because I think that's yeah. the right way to go. No one else but you knows where is the right direction to go. Doesn't matter what others tell you; it's just what your gut is telling you to do because that's you. Yeah. And no, no one else is gonna leave that for you. So I think you 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 did an amazing example of that. You know, I mean, you moved. Uh, everywhere across USA and and now back to Sweden back and forth Uh, so it's just fantastic
2: and I think it's good I mean in a way now when I see so when I came back to Sweden I mean I become kind of not unique but I mean very few faculty in Sweden have spent so many years in America so I kind of come in with this kind of experiences of different places and different systems that I can kind of use to improve in Sweden
0: exactly yeah
2: so I hope that that's kind of you know that's meaningful or helpful in a way
0: definitely definitely and um now that we mention uh you know academia and faculty positions and tenure and stuff uh i know that you mentioned that when you were you know getting tenure and everything you already had a daughter
1: mm-hmm.
0: but i'm interested to know like like when you decided to stay in academia or at least to follow an academic yeah. trajectory how do you felt about already being a mom or wanting to be a mom for a second or a third time, let's say, because um, I want to be a mom in the future. And right now to me, like, this is funny as well, because um, sometimes my grandma, when she was calling me on the phone, she was like, so when I was your age, I was already the mother of two kids. Like, what is Mm -hmm. happening with you? And I'm like, okay, (laughs) I am focusing on my career right now. And right now I'm a senior postdoc, right? And Mm -hmm. I don't see at all having kids yet because it's not possible uh, for personal reasons, but also for my my job, right? Eventually maybe I will move, I will go elsewhere. So I want to have my kids when I am settled and you have some sort of economic stability, right? So I know motherhood can be a really length discussion, but I want to get your your grasp about it. Like how did you felt about being a female academic in a jerarchy position having a kid and maybe wanting to have more
2: so i think i mean i think when i was a postdoc i that's when i started to think about having a kid and i we thought i thought that you know postdoc you have this very free position you can do as you want and you do your own stuff we we should have a kid now Mm -hmm. and we tried but I, I couldn't get pregnant. So I think mm-hmm. the thing was that, that uh, okay, to be very open, I didn't have my period. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, okay, I couldn't get pregnant. So we went to, I did have a very good health insurance when I was a postdoc. And I think mm-hmm. this kind of opened the door for, you know, testing a lot of things. But of course, so then we were put, uh, I was put on hormone treatments and, and different type of fertility mm-hmm. medicine to try to get pregnant. So I learned how to give myself injections and all kinds of things. And I went to this hospital to check stuff. And like nobody in my lab knew that, right? I didn't tell anybody because you didn't talk about things. Yeah. But I didn't get pregnant during my postdoc. I think this is key because I wonder nowadays what what had happened if I had a baby then? Would I just have returned to Sweden or like, you know, maybe my whole path would be very different. Yeah. But I didn't get pregnant and I moved to New Orleans. Mm -hmm. And then it, you know we 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 didn't think about having babies when I started out there but then we still it's still nagging right because I still didn't get a period uh, yeah. so then I had a colleague in another department and he had triplets mm. and that was a sign that okay he might have a doctor that can do in vitro fertilization or something like that so eventually I dared to ask him like can I have the name of your doctor mm-hmm. and then we went to this doctor so what we did IVF, and it worked the first time. Oh wow! Which was amazing. I mean, I, in a way, I didn't think it would work. I had bought books about adoption and things, and because I thought, you know, I cannot have a baby. We'll just try this, so we can kind of go to whatever next step that could be. Mm-hmm. But I got pregnant, and I was so nervous during that pregnancy, like that I would have a miscarriage, because I felt like it, it's artificial in some kind of way. That how will it? manage the whole way. Yeah. But then I everything went fine. <laughs> I had my baby and actually I had submitted my tenure package before I had the baby. Oh my God. <laughs> so I and I don't think I worried much about my tenure package or what would happen because I was more into this pregnancy, right?
0: Well yeah you had to give birth, right? <laughs> yeah.
2: So so and it was funny or funny, it was really interesting because in my department, as I said, there was only male faculty. I came in as the only woman. So they even organized a baby shower for me with all this male faculty. I mean, I, they, they had never done that before. They didn't know. But I mean, they didn't know how to handle a yeah. colleague that was pregnant. Mm. I also used it to my advantage because I told them that, you know, now I'm pregnant. I need to have a parking spot just outside the the building. <laughs> I got the handicapped parking spot outside the building
0: amazing It
2: was great <laughs> i thought it because it was very difficult to park there so i actually i wanted to you know i argued i need to get out if i need to go somewhere quickly yeah. anyway i had my my baby uh, and that's kind of then i was already i had a research group right That had students i also had a technician mm. that that took care of my when i when i had the baby right that could take care of the daily routines in the, in the lab. Mm. Because, of course, at that time, this was 99, uh, no, 2001, I had my first child.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And I was 33. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I was a little bit older, but not considered old with American. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, but, but the fact was that, I mean, there was no maternity leave. So,
1: mm.
2: what I did was that I took sabbatical. Mm. I could do that and that means I didn't have to teach and I didn't need to go to faculty meetings I guess or do committee work so I spent maybe a month or two at home with the baby I tried to kind of keep the work going in the lab right and I had this technician that would talk to me and talk to the people in the lab and some of the people would come to my house and we would chat about things and I was like nursing or I was going in between Mm And I was trying to write grants or do all kinds of things that I thought I had to do. Mm -hmm. And then I started to work with a nanny that would come, you know, and take care of the baby two afternoons per week, three afternoons, you know, every day a little bit. And, you know, I scaled up as much as I wanted. Mm -hmm. And so that worked. So in a way, I combined trying to continue the research and the group, which I mean, you can't stop that when you run a group. Mm, Yeah. And, you know, getting the, taking care of the baby until she could start a daycare. Yes. When she was one year old, that's when we got into a daycare. Mm. And then I could kind of go back to work more normally.
0: Yeah.
2: Or maybe I did before that, but I had the nanny full time. But in the end, that became really expensive to have a nanny working. Mm,
0: Yeah. Yeah.
2: So then, actually, my husband, being Swedish too, he wanted to take uh, parental, uh, or, or, uh, take some parental leave him as well. Yeah, but his company didn't awesome. allow him to do that.
0: Oh wow!
2: So I remember he took vacation every Friday. Oh, he could take God. vacation, so he was home every Friday to kind of you know do part of his duty. Mm. Wow! So, so that was the first child. Then, okay, so we did that, and you know that was uh, having one child, and and in a way, it changes your your life in a way. But still, you're two parents and one kid you can take thirds yeah so then we moved to Houston mm-hmm. actually we did try another IVF before we moved but it didn't work because mm-hmm. we thought maybe we should have one more hmm. and I remember but all those hormone treatments and all those it actually takes a lot of you yes.
1: so now yeah. when I think
2: back Gosh. I mean I was not really in my my right stage I mean it, all the grants that I wrote at that time and I, I, I this was really taking a toll on me of course and also course. like mentally will it work or not and you know what's going mm-hmm. to happen and also that you didn't speak about it to others right
0: no yeah and
2: now i think people are much more open and it's much more okay to actually discuss this which i think is important mm-hmm. so then we moved to 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 Houston and, and we started out there and you know we decided okay we'll have one child we'll give away all the stuff that we have when she was starting to grow older and then, by coincidence, so, so I don't know, we'll talk about this, but I, I you know, I, I have some funny eating behaviors, no, but I, I, I eat a lot of chocolate, and every night I have a bar of chocolate when I kind of relax in front of the TV. And mm-hmm. um, one evening, I didn't like the chocolate. It was like nasty, and I, oh my God, what's wrong with me? <laughs> okay. And then I thought, oh my God, I haven't got my period, or it's like maybe I'm pregnant. Mm. Because I think I had some periods now and then at the time. Mm. So I had my husband go and buy a bunch of uh, pregnancies. <laughs> I think I did nine different pregnancies. Oh my God. Run to the store and buy them. <laughs> and all but one said I was pregnant.
0: Oh, wow.
2: So, so here I got pregnant by myself.
0: Oh my God. And
2: so in a way, that was also this kind of amazing thing, right? That now yeah. it worked. So then I was pregnant and then... With my second child and you know my colleagues in my department now there was a few women in this department at rice university they all had zero or one child mm. so they looked at me and said, oh my god you're having another child you're really brave how are you going to do this <laughs> and i thought oh my god what's, <laughs> what's going to happen now yeah. and but i did the same thing so so when she was born I was home for a while, I took sabbatical that semester, so luckily they were born in semesters, right, so it was good timing, early in the semester and had the whole semester, and then um, I had a nanny come and work uh, for a period of time, so maybe three, four months, I was mostly gone and not in the lab, Um, but it kind of worked out, I think, and I mean, I felt because I could go to some baby classes with the, with the baby, like, you know, a few days a week, I did something like that, because mm. you should go and, and do some singing or gymnastics or whatever. <laughs> and then you could work in between. And the only thing I remember is that I always felt like when the baby is sleeping, I should work. <laughs> I, so I was always <laughs> trying to like, you know, please fall asleep now <laughs> so I can kind of check on the computer and do something.
0: Oh my God.
2: So I, I don't know, but in, in a way for me, it felt okay because I know my research was moving, right? Slower, but still moving. And I had, I was responsible for students in the lab. I needed to keep that going. But also you could because you had all this flexibility. Mm-hmm. So yes. I, I think it worked out really well. Mm-hmm. And then, then of course, in America, you put them in daycare and you can put them in daycare from well, you can put them as babies, but you just pay more. But I didn't want, to, I wanted them to be a little bit older. So that's, that's why I had nannies until they were say, one year old. Yeah. I know my second child, she she had to start a little bit later because she couldn't walk at one year old. And they wanted them to walk on their own in, in that daycare. So she was mm-hmm. like dragging herself along and it's like, okay, we'll wait a few more months. No. <laughs> wow. So so that was kind of the story. How, and and then I was already into this tenure track path, right? I was already in, immersed in America. So I think it was a lot of things that made it more natural to kind of go on with what you were doing. I think it would be yes. different if you have kids before you make your choices.
0: Yes, definitely. Still,
2: in another way, it might be easier because if you have your kids before, you actually start your own independent career. Yes, it's much easier to take a real break because you don't have obligations to others. Yes, but t- and today, I mean, you stop the clock, right? If you have a year of maternity leave, nobody should care about that when they look at your CV for for whatever merits they they are valuing.
0: Well, that's the that's what I was going to ask you, right? Because obviously when you are pregnant, you can perhaps go to the lab in and out. I mean, you you need to be careful because of the chemicals, but you can maybe go in and out. And then you can write, you can do, because you are still you, right? But when you give birth, you have someone else to take care about. And I just don't know if, do you feel that there is pressure on women that they have been mothers in science because obviously you need to take time off. You cannot take care of your lab. It's true that maybe when, the ba- when you are nursing the baby or when the baby is still a baby, you can write, you can ask for more funding, you can hire more people, but it's not the same, obviously. And it's, it's it, no. um, like, I have taken care of my nephews when they were babies and it's exhausting.
2: <laughs> I know, I think it is. And it's I think exhausting. it's exhausting. I think, you know, if it makes you feel good, you can try do those things in between, Or, or but, but you shouldn't really be, it cannot be counted as normal time because no. having a baby, having gone through giving birth and, you know, everything that comes with a new baby and you don't know how the new baby will behave. I mean, if they get yeah. colic and screams for, for weeks and, and I mean, they don't sleep and, and it's all kinds of issues that you need to deal with. So I think it's, we need to give women time off for this, right? And it needs to be fully accepted. And I think we need, I think we should also give, I mean, if you are, advi- if you are the leader of a lab, you should get extra help in the lab while you're gone. So you don't have to worry.
0: Exactly. Because That's end-
2: something that I'm thinking about now to try to introduce, like, you know, that you actually get another person with somebody pays for another person kind of, trying to, exactly. to deal with your lab so you can feel more you can do the crucial things maybe or you know listen and talk and say something have an opinion but you don't need to do the actual work
0: exactly because like even like obviously you need to take care of the baby but you also need to take care of your postpartum so yeah. it's it's just it's, it's also taking care of yourself and your health is tough yeah and, and, and that can depend so much and you can never
2: predict that right
0: exactly yeah so do you after feel after
2: I gave birth so I had C sections mm. and I lost a lot of blood so I mean my blood levels or iron levels I was so dizzy for weeks you know it, oh t- it took goodness. a long time and it was and also a C section you can't really walk so well I mean that's like a surgery and you can all, have all types of
0: complications Of course yeah but do you feel um women are supported enough with motherhood in, in academia because obviously you have you can have many different cases you can have different universities that they will support you yeah. more or less that they will accept it more or less but do you feel now with your experience um, universities are coming a long way to support motherhood and also to support you as a scientist after you come back to work I think
2: we we are i would say that we can do more i think it's getting much better i mean mm-hmm. you know if you think American, there was no maternity leave at all or like two mm. weeks with unpaid when I was having my kids, you know, it's starting to be different at many universities now. Yeah. So you have at least a paid leave but and you have many places that you kind of can count away the time when you were home with the baby. Yes. Still, yeah. I don't think that's enough. I think you can, you should count away more time probably yeah. than mm-hmm. you're actually home and you should get extra support. And this should be for your lab. So I think there should be funds like that you actually, you don't have to use your own grants, but you help set up depending Mm -hmm. on where you are. If it's a person from another lab that comes in and help out, or you hire somebody, or another faculty steps in and supervises a little bit, you know, every case might be different, but we should have ways of doing this. And so that's one thing, and I, I, think we're not there yet, but I do think that this becomes more and more important. And I see when when there are evaluations, grant grant proposals, and, and different applications, it's very it's it's becoming really firm that you should not. I mean, you you have to count away that time, so you have to disclose it. But the, then I also think it's important say when you go for postdocs. Um, that you give extra money. So that's another thing when you already have a kid, right? Or two or so, and you want to go for a postdoc. I mean, that poses a new problem if you have a family to take with you when you go for a postdoc. Yeah. And many times that's a problem for women because men go for a postdoc and they bring a wife and kids and they stay at home and that's it. But mm-hmm. mm-hmm. so I think there should be extra funding so women can bring their family and the guy can be at home with the kids. Mm-hmm. And, yes. and some places. Finland is doing this. Denmark is doing this that they add on money to a postdoc fellowship exactly. to bring the
0: family. Yes, I think we um, obviously I'm I'm talking from from things that I hear and talking to colleagues. I think we are coming a long way as well um, because I also think it's not only the the mum right, but uh, no. we also need to support the dad because. Yeah paternity leave is significantly less than, than maternity one. So I think we, yeah. there's going in terms of, we talk about motherhood, but it's also the the dad, if if there is one, right? So obviously you can be yeah. a single mom if, if that's your choice or if that's your circumstances. Um, so I, I agree with you. I think we are coming a long way, but obviously um, I also wanted to ask you something about this because this is something that I think sometimes to myself, right? Because right now it's, it's me, I am a scientist and it's me and you know, I go home, I do my thing and then I go back to work and I do my thing. You might Mm -hmm. have a partner or not, that doesn't really matter. But when you become a mom, you are a scientist but you are also a mother, right? So I think this is obviously when I, because I have, you know, my sister is a mom and I have colleagues that they have been a mom. So when you are a mom, your priorities change right? Your your visions yep. also about work. How important is that experiment? How important is to get that paper? And it's not that you are less of a scientist or you are a different scientist, but your perspective yep. changes about a lot of things. So especially when you had your first baby, I am interested to know your opinion about where you worried when you were having the baby, just right after the hospital, where you worried that you will be a different scientist, or your career was gonna progress less, or would you like you just had to adapt to a different rhythm in your mm-hmm. career, if that makes any You're sense.
2: You're right. I mean, I think I was worried that not that I would be less good, but that I would have less time, right? Yeah. And therefore I wouldn't be as productive. Mm-hmm. And but I think what happens when you had have, have a child, at least I felt like I become much more efficient in a way, Mm. you know, I felt limited many times that I have to stop now, you know, a baby crying or or a baby that needs to a kid that needs to be picked up. You know, you have no choice, you have to leave. Yeah. So so it was so nice sometimes to take turn with my husband that I could stay as late as I want, right, and kind of finish my whatever I was working on at the moment. So I didn't have to run home to a certain time. Mm -hmm. But I do think it also made me more clearly see what's important and how much time to put into something you know when is a paper ready to be submitted or not you know yeah good mm-hmm. enough or, or or well enough or, or instead of doing all these extra things that might not be necessary exactly but i think part of this kind of is you because i felt this and more so when i had two kids i would say that i started to feel this torn that i I want to spend time with the kids. I'm their mom. I, I want to be, I mean, I want to be with them when they grow up and develop, Yeah. but okay. I also want to work a lot, you know, because I want to be a good scientist. And my peers, they are there on the evenings, on the weekends, you know, they, they're in their offices all the time. And I felt this really torn. I wasn't, I wasn't doing well to any side in a way. And I felt guilty. Hmm. And a lot of faculty, a lot of, people, I would say, that have uh, good jobs in America, they would just buy a nanny. Mm-hmm. A lot of American kids can only speak Spanish because they have a Spanish nanny. And, yeah. the and I didn't want that. Or, I mean, I wanted to be with them, too. So th- I think part of that was within the reason uh, argumentation to go back to Sweden, mm-hmm. where kind of your social life or, or private life is more appreciated or accepted. Mm-hmm. I mean I know my when I was up for when I was at Rice University and, and I after a number of years I wanted to be promoted to full professor mm. and my mm. dean who was a senior woman she said no you cannot be promoted to full professor because you have kids oh. and she oh. had selected career over kids right so she didn't have any, any kids mm. and you know she looked at me and said you know you can't have both because I didn't have both Mm. And I realized that there's something that, you know, this is changing now because this was many years ago. Mm. But it kind of just shows that you it's kind of, you have to select in a way. And and I always wanted to show that it must be possible to have both, right? Good, and to yeah. be oh, yeah. Yeah, a good scientist, I mean, good in whatever that means, and, and be a good mom and show that we can do this. Otherwise, you know, academia is not a terrible place.
0: In, in, indeed yeah and it's to be honest it's really encouraging to hear you speaking because I can see that you you definitely have both you are definitely succeeding in what you do and I'm, I'm pretty sure you're an amazing mom and it's just like an amazing example right and this is why I wanted to have you here as well and talk yeah. to you because it's so and I inspiring. want to turn it
2: ar- yeah and I want to turn it around too because I also think that academia is really good for being a mom because of all the flexibility. I mean, I've, I've, I think I've used that a lot to my, you know, benefit sometimes. I mean, I, for a period of time, I would walk my kids to school and I would start after that. I didn't have meetings earlier because I wanted to, you know, have breakfast with my kids and walk them to school. Mm-hmm. You know, if they have a dentist appointment and if they're sick, I could always do it exactly. because I could always like leave and do what I had to do or yeah, bring them into faculty meetings if I had to when they were smaller, you know, I, I've had babies crawling on the floor and then, ah! okay, I can focus on the faculty meeting. Maybe the other faculty focused on the baby. I don't know, but...
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> but it is true. Academia is more flexible for those yeah. stuff because you can leave, you can come in and out. Yeah. And then you can even have the baby in the office if you have yeah. to. So yeah, in that sense, I do recognize that it's a good place to, uh, to have your no,
2: theater. No, and I, think we, and I think that should be more and more... Okay, right. I mean, it must be okay, because we are, we want to be, we are normal human beings. And when I started out, when I was the only female professor at Tulane, you know, 20 years ago, there was very few women to look at, you know, the few women that faculty professor, female professors that I read about it, like chemical engineering news or some other scientific journal. They were like, there was always that, oh, they are like alone, they are single, they work 24 hours a day, they don't need to sleep and they run marathons and they all these (laughs) super duper persons. And I was like, oh my God, how can that be? It was very hard to, you know, who to identify with and like how to, and I think we really need normal people as role models. And I think science needs normal people. I mean, we need a lot of different inputs to do the science.
0: Exactly. Well, that's uh, that's one of the core values of this podcast. I want to show yeah. real people, you know, that with real stories, real backgrounds, and just showing that scientists is not only one look or no. one word or just one definition, you know, is many of them. We are all connected by our love for science, I think, yeah. but we are all different. We have been through many different journeys and backgrounds and countries and everything. So, Yeah, this is one of the things that I want to demystify as well, and especially with testimonies about um, motherhood like yours. Like Mm -hmm. a successful female scientist in a highly uh, up position in academia, it doesn't mean that she's alone working 24 7. She's not a mom. She doesn't, you know, relate to someone or have social life or anything. It's Mm -hmm. not that whatsoever. As the same way as science is not about middle aged men with white hair mm-hmm, <laughs> and a lab mm-hmm. coat and a bow tie <laughs> no no exactly no so,
2: so it's like no it's really about and i think that's kind of more and more discussed now i mean i, I think it should be because diversity you know inclusion gender equality and, and, and kind of inclusion in all kinds of ways not just women and men i mean there's so many other different aspects we all come to the table with our own unique experience and that can help and I mean in, in the end science or academia is about solving problems and the world has a lot of problems to solve mm-hmm. and we just need all to like you know use everybody to to figure it out
0: exactly so yeah I think you are definitely doing your bit in to demystify this and I'm so happy to to use my podcast as a, as a vehicle for that you mm-hmm. know and just to share your story and, and just to set up an example of, of this uh, for, for the audience and and for everyone that like me is thinking about becoming a mom or mm-hmm. someone that is already a mom and just is struggling or something so I'm so happy that, that we got to talk today and that you shared your story because it's fantastic it's an amazing example and um, you know you were saying about science is diverse and we need more representation and more role models and to domestify these things. Um, If I I can get all of that and talk about gender inequality, right, Mm -hmm. and you had the next generation of female scientists in front of you with all these aspirations, all these goals, and all this vision about being a scientist and being a female scientist, what would be your advice to them to to inspire them to get into science or just to give them some words of wisdom for them?
2: Well, I think it's important to do what you think think is fun. You know, follow your heart, what you really want to do. Don't follow any trends Mm -hmm. And, and be open to chances, take chances, you know, we should open doors and try. And I think really science, academia or research needs women. Yeah. And it's a good time to go in there now.
0: That's amazing. So, so
2: please do it. We want you.
0: <laughs> we all want you. <laughs> yeah. So, well, it has been amazing to talk to you, Panila. I have learned a lot well, from you. And I will keep talking to you for like three or four hours, Um, but that will be a very long podcast. (laughs) Yes, that will be a very long podcast, but I'm so happy that uh, you you are here today with us and then you share your story because it's honestly a role model. And I hope you realize how amazing you are doing and how proud your kids must be of you and your husband as well, because it's honestly, goals, is just um, amazing, you know, scientist mom doing all these things, all these initiatives, all these committees, and just, you know, raising your kids, being yourself, and just doing your science, publishing papers, have these amazing um, repercussions for your science in the long term, so it's just, honestly, like, heads, heads off.
2: <laughs> well, thank you, thank you very much for saying that, and it, it's, you know it feels good to hear too and i want to say that i think it's very good of you or great to have this podcast right to try to bring this out to other people because i think that's also so important to communicate and reach out
0: thank you yeah that's, you do that's... a wonderful
2: job and i'm ah, happy to be you. on this yeah
0: yeah i'm so happy yeah as long as the message gets spread you know and then people get inspired then my job is done <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> thank you so much you will be a great professor in the future oh thank you that's that means so much to me i always Mm -hmm. think that i don't know if i will be good enough professor but i I hope i will
2: (laughs) i think you will and you know you can always come to me and i'll I'll give you advice
0: oh yes please we are besties now right yes Yes, we are (laughs) i'm so thankful that you are here thank you so much
2: thank you thank you Standing when she talking, feeling
1: magic, and I always start to panic Cause I know I gotta have it. These eyes they do me damage, yeah. It's for my girl, but it's also ours, tell you manage, yeah. The twenty one, not savage, yeah. You're not standing when she talking, feeling magic.